Welcome back to Postscript, a brief yet thorough overview of each event on the WSL's championship tour. Today, we recap event number two of the 2021 season, the Rip Curl Newcastle Cup presented by Corona. The disruption caused by COVID-19 continues to prove unwieldy for the WSL as they dance one beat behind the unpredictable spikes and ever-changing protocols of various governments and regulating bodies. Flying 100 surfers and staff around the world, observing quarantine and then holding a surf competition seems almost impossible to execute anywhere in the world. And in fact, it was impossible for the first 11 months of 2020. Throwing a Hail Mary and an abundance of caution to the wind, the WSL landed in Hawaii in December and completed the first event of what was scheduled to be an 11-event season. And that's where Postscript left off on December 22nd, 2020, with a John John Florence and Gabriel Medina final, with John John securing his inaugural Pipe Masters title. In that event, Gabriel would also avenge his previous year's final loss to current champ Idolo Ferreira in the semifinals, and Kelly Slater would reassert his relevance as a title contender with a third place finish. Despite the five-day interruption of that event due to the WSL CEO and staffers testing positive for COVID-19, the event finished in great waves and executed what has been the goal of the professional surf tour at some times and in some of its various incarnations. That is, putting the best surfers in the best waves in the world. More on that later. During that pipe event, what was perceived to be a COVID-19 hiccup proved instead to be a harbinger, and perhaps, in fact, the defining incident that would derail the rest of the season. The result was the cancellation of surf events in Hawaii for the foreseeable future. This meant that the upcoming event number two at Sunset Beach was gone. Event number three in Santa Cruz, California was postponed, but eventually would also be canceled. The WSL's updated tour schedule on their website also disappeared, G-Land, but that was never mentioned in the press release and it hasn't been explained since. In the time of COVID, I suppose all can be forgiven and most fans are grateful for any version of a world tour that can be pulled off. Undeterred by their own shot through their own foot, the WSL went to work trying to reimagine and shuffle the Australian leg of the tour, a country that has successfully stifled the virus due in part to their border closures between the five states during the pandemic, a detail that would make the WSL's traditional schedule even more challenging. So even if they got the tour to Queensland, it would be very difficult to get everyone over to Victoria and then again to West Oz. And the original schedule's timeline simply wouldn't work if you accounted for quarantines with each transfer. And then the complication of having contingencies in place for COVID contractions at each move seemed insurmountable. But then came Andrew Stark, WSL's general manager of Australia and Oceania. Through a couple of fits and starts, Stark was able to line up four events in Australia in the two most welcoming states, New South Wales and Western Australia. The idea being 
The tour would now have 10 events on schedule, and if they can get everyone to Australia, they'd run four events there over the course of three months, which hopefully will give time for the virus to continue to recede worldwide and for vaccinations to continue to be injected. And then they'd have a lot better shot at completing the final five events of the season when the tour departs Australia. The first event of this Australian leg would actually be the second event of the season, and that would run at Newcastle, then Narrabeen, both of those in April, then off to Western Australia for Margaret River and Rottnest Island for events number four and five in May. Before any of these events would kick off, news broke that the WSL's SVP of Tours, Pat O'Connell, would be resigning from his role immediately. During Pat's brief tenure, we saw the addition of the finals day concept at Lowers to run later this year. We also saw the addition of Garagegon, Sunset Beach, and Santa Cruz, none of which have actually come to fruition yet. That looks to be overseen by WSL staffer who stepped into Pat O'Connell's role, Jesse Miley Dyer. Other than Australian surfers who are already in country, athletes and staff flew from around the world to Los Angeles in early March to catch a WSL chartered flight to Sydney, where they then conducted a 14-day quarantine in two hotels. Two key contenders missed that flight, Caroline Marks and Kelly Slater. Caroline tested positive for COVID-19 the day of the charter, and Kelly withdrew, citing a nagging ankle injury which rumors suggested and Instagram footage supports is actually a foot injury that he re-aggravated when he wiped out on a mountain bike the day before the finals at the Pipe Masters. That is not a joke. Um, other rumors claim that it's a back injury. Who actually knows? What we can speculate and what the stats actually indicate is that this updated tour schedule doesn't play to Kelly's strengths, i.e. good waves. Kelly tends to do well in good waves and not well in not good waves. So the idea of committing to three months in Australia, competing at qualifying series venues, isn't really fit for the king. And while those rumors may be true, Kelly was actually sitting third on the rankings, his best position after event one since 2013. So despite its challenges, 2021 might have been Kelly's best opportunity for a 12th world title. And it still might be, by the way. Kelly still has time to join the tour at Margaret River. And if the traditional math applies, he could use these two events as throwaways, and he'll be right back on track. Caroline Mark's COVID result turned out to be a false positive, and she was actually able to catch a commercial flight and do her obligatory two-week quarantine, still in time for the opening hooter at Newcastle. Upon exiting quarantine, surfers had about a week to free surf and prep at Newcastle. And the first couple of days offered incredible surf, head high peaks, barreling into the offshore winds. Word was that Idolo, Felipe, and Jordi were all looking primed, but multiple people on site told me that David Silva, of all people, seemed to be the standout in the free surfs, an observation that proved to be prophetic. 2019 world title contender Chloe Andino made the flight to Australia and even persevered quarantine, only to be sidelined prior to the event due to an ankle injury suffered in a free surf. There's no word on how long he will be out of the water. Uh, he lost in the round of 32 at pipe, an equal 17th, 
So he wasn't really well positioned for Newcastle, but it could be argued that he would thrive in the conditions at Newcastle. Whatever the case, it simply wasn't to be, so we'll wait to see what happens with Kaloe. Unfortunately, those free surf waves and the conditions diminished for the following two weeks, and in what Surfline forecasted as six to eight foot, quote, good quality surf, turned into an April Fool's joke as the event kicked off in knee-high slop on April 1st. Some heats simply went flat without two scoring opportunities for each surfer. Mercifully, round one isn't an elimination round, so any surfers that suffered a cruel loss due to the circumstance were given the hope that round two would provide equal opportunity. And that somewhat came to fruition as swell filled in and competitors moved out of the shore break and onto the running right off of the rocks. In round two, despite the swell in the water, the conditions still weren't that great, but the wonky and chunky sections offered opportunities for scoring and for fans, if nothing else, relatable conditions. Surfers like Julian Wilson, Jack Robinson, Owen Wright, and Connor Coffin, who were all crueled by Mother Nature on day one, shifted into QS mode and grinded through the saving grace round, along with Leonardo Fioravanti, Connor O'Leary, Michel Berez, and the 2015 world champion, Adriano de Souza, who, by virtue of making this heat, would go on to surf his 500th heat on tour in the next round. This, by the way, is Adriano's self-elected final year on tour. He would go on to a quarterfinals finish in this event, losing by two-tenths of a point to eventual finalist Gabriel Medina. Those first two days of immense time and resource usage netted precisely what it does in every event, regardless of location or year, and that is the elimination of four male surfers and two female surfers who will ultimately be completely inconsequential to the world title. Two key highlights from those first two days were Idolo Ferreira and John John Florence. Both of their surfing looked better than everyone else, but beyond that, they stayed busy and exercised a wide variety of maneuvers and variation on any bit of water that moved, not just on set waves. And both were riding unconventional boards. JJF on a Dark Arts constructed Pizel and Idolo on a Patterson. I'm not sure what the model was, but it was short, squat, and flat. And on it, Idolo never stopped surfing. If some surfers develop a heat strategy based on their competitors, Idolo shirked any awareness that he even had competitors. In the commentary booth, Bugs stopped counting Idolo's waves at 17, and there was still five minutes left in the heat. Idolo seemed to just be having fun. The surf was in the shore break, and that style of wave is unpredictable. So Idolo gave himself three times as many opportunities as his competitors, and he trounced them as a result. From this opening salvo, Idolo looked destined for the win. As the event slogged through the next couple of days, interrupted by a couple of lay days, Morgan Siblick emerged as the feel-good story and even a potential threat to Idolo's telegraphed win. This came into sharp focus when he drew John John Florence, and John John applied his same strategy from Heat 1, staying busy, catching a lot of waves, and giving himself plenty of opportunity. What he didn't account for was that conditions had changed, something not lost on the local boy. 
Morgan opted to sit out the back and wait for sets, and when he got him, he surfed to his potential. Without any challenge for priority, Morgan surfed his first wave to an 8.1. He'd back that up midway through the heat on his third wave ridden with a 7.6. John, for his 12 waves ridden, could only muster a 7.83 and a 5.33. Morgan held the lead and patiently held priority, knowing that his 7.6 could be improved upon given the swell and the conditions. And in the final minutes, he got his chance and he capitalized. The judges rewarded him with a 9.03, and the local boy found himself beating the two-time world champ by a golf of four points. A similar story developed, albeit more quietly, on the women's side of the tour, where tour rookie Isabella Nichols beat tour heavyweight Tatiana Weston-Webb, not once, but twice. She did that to make her way into the quarterfinals, where she'd face seven-time world champ Stephanie Gilmore. Undeterred, and again, by virtue of wave selection, Isabella surfed four waves compared to Stephanie's eight. Isabella took the win with a modest 13.9 heat total. Her toughest heat draw prior to the final would come in the form of Keely Andrew, whom the waves at Newcastle seemed perfectly suited. Keeley had dispatched Sally Fitzgibbons and an in-form Courtney Conlog, who did everyone a favor by beating Tyler Wright in round three. Keeley barely survived rounds one and two, but once the Wrights started running down the sandbar, she settled into her strengths and, like Isabella, upset the field. Their close semifinal resulted in Isabella on top. And across the bracket, Caroline Marks drew Carissa Moore, who I hadn't mentioned yet, but was always going to be the woman to beat. Isabella and Keeley both made it this far in the event without ever breaking a 15-point heat total, but by contrast, Carissa and Caroline barely dipped below it. And in a moment that would later go viral that evening, while leading quarterfinal number three over Joanne DeFay with seven minutes left in the heat, Carissa Moore set a new standard of progression. The afternoon light had dropped just below the hill, so as Carissa dropped to the bottom of the wave, she pumped twice through the shadows, and then in one fluid motion, she aimed to the lip, out of the dark, and into the golden light. Indy grabbed through a high spin, lands in the sweet spot of the transition, and her tail pokes ever so slightly and sends her through a quick spin from Fakie, and as she straightens her stance, her mouth simultaneously drops open and her hands frame her face in disbelief that not only has she landed the single best air by a female that we've ever seen, she did it while wearing a jersey. As the camera follows her through her kickout, it pans to include Joanne DeFay at the bottom of the frame, who had just surfed the first wave of the set beautifully, belting three turns for a 6.17, and there she is, clapping for Carissa, as impressed by her competitor as we are, or maybe just endeared to the fact that Carissa seems more surprised than we are that she pulled this off. There were also a couple of highlights outside of the water, new additions to the event as part of the commentary team, Stace Galbraith doing post-heat interviews with sharp, concise, and pointed questions that extract juicy insights, Laura Enever offered refreshing water commentary, as did another former tour competitor, now sideline reporter, Dimity Stoyle from the beach. Rabbit Bartholomew was great, as he always is whenever we get a chance to see him. 
he was great in a way that only someone who has served in roles of every aspect in professional surfing can be, but uh, none of whom have the level of charm and charisma as Bugs. Gratefully, and perhaps according to the plan from the beginning, the final two days of the event ran in the best conditions of the waiting period. Five of the eight surfers on the men's side were Brazilian. The one lone American was Connor Coffin, and the two Australians were actually both local surfers, Morgan Siblick and Ryan Callanan, who fittingly tied in front of their home crowd. Morgan would take the win in the count back by virtue of the single highest wave score. Free surf standout David Silva secured his best result ever with a quarterfinal finish and a very narrow loss to Idolo Ferreira, 12.4 to Idolo's 12.67. Idolo would soundly beat Felipe in semifinal number two, and the dream run of Morgan Siblick would finally come to an end against Gabriel Medina. In the best waves of the event, Morgan surfed beautifully, but ultimately under what we had seen from him in previous heats. Gabriel, on the other hand, used the increased energy in the swell and the groomed faces to find new angles and approaches. Most notably, as a set approached and Morgan held priority where any conventional competitor would have on the right bank, Gabriel paddled the opposite way, towards a closeout left. The wave was overhead, and there was only one possible option for a maneuver, but the opportunity seemed narrow and the ramp was huge. Even Bugs in the booth was confused, and he interrupted his own sentence to say, Oh, here he is, taking off on a left. Gabe launched into a section with a loft and spin that really we'd expect in previous years, or maybe just from any other class of surfer, to be a complete flyaway, because it just seemed so huge, and it was into a no-man's-land part of the lineup. But before I even had time to process the oddity of Gabriel going left, Gabe greased the landing and the crowd, presumably there to support Morgan, went nuts for it. Gabe earned a 9.7 for it and Morgan walked away with a semifinal loss, which is still a win, and a very respectable 14.07 heat total against the two-time champ. On the women's side, the disparity between tour rookie Isabella Nichols and four-time world champ Carissa Moore made for an unusual viewing experience. Even Isabella herself admitted to being speechless that she found herself in this position, surfing against one of her idols in the final. But the truth is, she needn't be. She earned her way onto the tour. Some of her free surf edits showcase a potential that is beyond what most of her competitors possess, and she earned her way to surf against Carissa in this final. But it seemed that she psyched herself out, and as a result, she surfed her worst heat of the event, amassing an 8.34 total. And for her part, Carissa never let up until the final moments of the heat. Having Isabella comboed with a series of some of the best turns we had seen all event, Carissa continued to strategically use priority, vie for set waves and positioning, and even post a 9.5, the second highest wave score of the event after her own 9.9 .9 air reverse. She would take the event win with a 15.73 heat total. Adding this to her second place finish at Pipe puts her in first on the rankings, while Tyler Wright won Pipe, her ninth place finish in Newcastle, puts her a full 5,000 points behind Carissa and a mere 2,000 points ahead of third place ranked Isabella Nichols. Stephanie Gilmore sits in fourth, and a three-way tie for fifth is shared by Caroline Marks, 
Sally Fitzgibbons, and Tatiana Weston-Webb. The Gabriel and Idolo final on the men's side seemed to be representative, potentially, of our next significant rivalry. John John Florence is the only other surfer that I can think of that is at their level of surfing and competitive prowess. If the waves get good, certainly Jack Robinson and Kelly Slater can surf at their level. And if the waves are under head high, let's say, Felipe can probably hang. But John is the only one who can do it from Rio to Chopu to Lowers to Pipe and all with the same competitive savvy. But I don't really know where he fits into this conversation about rivalry. John John doesn't show enough emotion of any sort for me to read. And I can't tell how much he even cares about losing or winning. And I certainly can't tell if he hates losing to Gabe more than he did losing to Morgan Siblick, let's say. Gabe and Idolo, on the other hand, it may have been born a long time ago, but it became crystal clear to me in the 2019 Pipe Masters. Gabe held pole positioning going into that event. He was the man to beat. He was the two-time world champ and the reigning pipe master. A third world title and a second pipe masters was Gabe's to lose. And if Idolo was to win, he'd have to knock out the champ. And that's precisely what he did. And what I'm presuming is at the center of, again, this presumed rivalry is the fact that Idolo beat Gabe precisely the same way that Gabe had beaten nearly everyone else throughout his previous reign of dominance. By going left and right, manufacturing scores on insignificant waves, bettering those scores with eights and nines on set waves, getting barreled, doing huge airs, sharking around the lineup. That is what Gabriel is known for, and that is how Idolo beat him to win the 2019 Pipe Masters and world title. So if Gabe harbored any resentment or vengeance, he concealed it through a seemingly very happy and active social life on social media through early 2020. Partying with Brazil's most famous soccer star and courting one of Brazil's most popular models. His vengeance would be delayed even further by the onset of the pandemic, but the two would eventually meet in December at Pipeline in the semifinals. Perhaps the tension was overwrought, or perhaps Idolo's injury in his previous heat nullified his intensity, but the heat proved to be a bit of a letdown. The waves were good, and there were opportunities to score, but both surfers put in paltry performances, and Gabe eked out his vengeance with a 12.6 heat total, leaving Idolo only needing a 5.23 to advance. And Idolo actually paddled into that exact wave with 20 seconds left in the heat, but uncharacteristically didn't make the barrel for what would have easily netted him a 7. Gabe took the W and perhaps some bragging rights, but lost to John John in the very next heat. John John's early round loss at Newcastle meant that Gabriel would regain the number one spot on the rankings mid-event. And now he faced Idolo yet again in the final, the winner of which would not only take the event win, but also the ratings lead, relegating John to third by a 4,000 point margin. I talked about the winning surfer staying busy and catching a lot of waves in the early rounds of marginal surf, and then their strategy shifting as the swell filled in, finding winners sitting and waiting for set waves. Well, as the conditions hit their zenith on finals day, Idolo and Gabe had opportunities to do both things, surf a steady stream of high-quality waves throughout the 40-minute final. 
And because of this, priority was almost moot, and neither surfer protected it nor fought for it. Each surfer opened with marginal scores, but when the first set arrived, Gabriel connected through a combination of turns for an 8.6. Idolo was on the second wave, a flatter wave without the same scoring potential, and he surfed it to a 7.17. Moments later, Gabriel was already out the back and looked to replicate the magic that he displayed against Morgan Siblick by going left on a closeout. Rather than aiming for the huge punt, he got duped into a quick top turn, which then positioned him for a floater rather than an air on the end section. These two turns yielded a 4.67, and despite his busyness and the eight waves that he surfed in the next 28 minutes, Gabriel would fail to improve on that backup score. Idolo held the lead throughout the entirety of the final, and somewhere in there, under Gabe's priority, he found a mid-sized, stretched out right. It didn't look like much of a wave, but he pumped his way to the closeout section and hit it and spun recklessly. Somehow, he landed a full spin effortlessly and without a grab, and in a final filled with combinations of turns, this air was the single point of difference, and it netted him a 7.77. Gabe still held the highest wave score with his 8.6, but without a proper backup, Idolo's pair of sevens would earn him the win and another rung up in this budding rivalry. In the world rankings, Idolo sits in first with less than 500 points over Gabriel. John sits in third, and Jordy, Kanoa, and Ryan Callanan all share a three-way tie for fourth. At the end of the event, the WSL announced yet another shift to the tour schedule. Surf Ranch is moved to June, and Barra de la Cruz in Mexico has been added to the schedule. This Aussie leg is still completely intact, and Mick Fanning will join us as the wild card in Narrabeen, which starts very soon, April 16th, on WorldSurfLeague.com. The free surfs there have seen some double overhead surf with the boys absolutely ripping. But the forecast isn't so great for this next week. So if Narrabeen follows Newcastle script, we are in for inconsistent conditions, but completely predictable outcomes for the athletes with the same two names in the top two spots in the real competitive battle developing for who will get spots three, four, and five headed into lowers. This is, of course, David Scales for Surf Splendor, and we will see you there.